Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editors Bowman Cox and Nielsen Hobbs. Today is May 21st, 2021, and we're here in Washington still looking out for the brood X cicadas. Surprisingly, despite all the hype, I've only seen one of them. But we're all, we also were on the lookout this week for the line of for the lawmakers interested in grilling emergent biosolutions following the quality problems that emerged at its Baltimore plant making coronavirus vaccines. Bowman, you covered the hearing for us. What were your big takeaways? Well, and uh, just to refresh everyone's memory, this all started with the uh, viral vector cross-contamination incident that came to light earlier this year where um, uh, uh, virus from the AstraZeneca vaccine that they were making at the plant appeared in a lot of Johnson & Johnson vaccine that they were also making there. Uh, The hearing, uh, this was the um, House Select Coronavirus Crisis uh, Subcommittee, and it uh, was really focused on why the Trump administration uh, issued such a large tax order to emergent uh, to produce uh, these vaccines, given uh, 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 given its uh, record of, of quality issues. And the hearing was interesting because uh, Emergent pointed out that, uh, uh, in their view, the problem was uh, the fact that uh, the facility had had sort of a funding drought over the years and all of a sudden had to ramp up uh, staffing and operations in a way that just uh, was not likely to go well, basically. Um, And this raises a question about standby production capacity for for pandemics or other crises. And it really really goes back to two visions for how to do that. Uh, The one is uh, a boutique government sector that uh, stands at the ready uh, this was the vision that really came out uh, of the Obama administration in response to the H1N1 pandemic, and that's uh, when they, uh, you know, established their arrangement with Emergent Biosolutions. And then the other vision really dates back to World War II, and it, you know, hasn't really been used since the Korean War, which is the Defense Production Act, where the government just basically uh, takes private sector capacity and puts it to government use. Uh, so we're going to really start to see uh, which vision worked best, uh, what other visions might work better. And this is going to start with um, lessons learned. And so what we heard today was the lesson from the emergent situation. But, uh, you know, there were many other uh, ramp-ups that occurred uh, that, that we haven't really looked at. For example, um, you know, Moderna went zero to 60 with their vaccine, and things seemed to go pretty well from what we know. Uh, Pfizer had some challenges, but overall, uh, they had a great ramp-up. And there, you know, there, there are other ones to look at that haven't been looked at yet. You know, the way Gilead ramped up their remdesivir production, and then also the COVID therapeutics at Regeneron and Lilly and Mark. So it's going to be interesting to see what we learn from all this. 
and how we apply it in terms of the next pandemic. But I just wanted to um, also point out that, you know, there's a big takeaway about risk. I mean, in, in the middle of the crisis, everyone took huge risks. Uh, you know, when Congress passed the CARES Act, they removed a lot of the guardrails that are normally in place um, to prevent any sort of, uh, you know, uh, questionable contracting practices. Uh, the government exercised the discretion that they were given. Uh, industry manufactured at risk. Now the crisis has passed and we can, uh, we're in the Monday morning quarterbacking phase, which is a much more comfortable place to be. Hopefully, uh, they'll come out of this with some lessons learned that they can actually apply to the next pandemic before everyone uh, forgets about this problem and moves on to other things. Yeah, that's that's interesting, Bowman. I mean, what, one of the things that stuck out to me was, and you mentioned this a little bit, was that, you know, Emergent was one of these facilities that was kind of identified a while ago as being, you know, like kind of like surge capacity or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they were they were saying, that's fine, we're, we'll be ready. But then they said, we didn't get enough work from you guys to be ready when we were called on. So I get, I you know, I guess I get a little confused at at what at what they were, you know, what the problem with that was. But you know, maybe that's just I don't know. Maybe I just don't understand it fully. Right. They seem to sort of be saying like they have to be sort of working all the time to, to <laughs> like the, right that there's not a there's there is no like sort of keeping things going so you're ready. You either have to give us work so. Well, sir, we can't. Well, we kind of already are at that capacity, or it's going to take more time than you want for us to be able to, you know, safely get to the higher um, surge level. Right. I mean, that's the challenge with this approach, and I think um, one one aspect that people uh, don't really think about is what's involved in having a, a, a smooth. Uh, running manufacturing operation. I mean, it's um, it's the kind of a process that sort of you know it it works best when when it's uh, sort of continuing and you have people there that have been working together and know each other and know how they work and they know the process and day in and day out it's pretty much uh, the same thing day after day. Uh, you know, so. Anytime when you have a ramp up, it's not going to be like that, but maybe you have teams there that have already been working together on other things. But here here was a case where apparently they just had to throw a lot of people into a situation uh, and, uh, and it was really challenging to get to that uh, point. And, you know, it was difficult in some of the other uh, products. I think, you know, um, the, you know, they all, I, I think the Pfizer uh, vaccine, did not hit their initial targets because it, it was uh, slower than expected or at least hoped for in their ramp up, uh, you know, but they got there. But Emergent, they really struggled. Uh, it was interesting that uh, the company uh, put uh, the blame for some of their problems on one of their clients, AstraZeneca. Last fall, uh, there were some contamination issues with the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine and uh, they said that it was because when they got the tran tech transfer order from the company, it, it, it kept changing. 
that there was like 80 changes that they had to deal with. And, and again, that's all part of the process with this uh, with these vaccines. They're uh, ramping up production as they're um, working on development. And that means that the process, you know, it's uh, they have processes that were not really completely locked down. So, you know, it was a challenge all around. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder if you want to have, you know, uh, and maybe this maybe this is something that in-house manufacturing goes through too. But you know, I mean, if you're, it just makes you wonder if kind of contract manufacturers are the you know the best way to kind of be able to do these type of ramp ups. I mean, especially when you're talking about 80 process changes. I mean, that you know, I don't know much about manufacturing, but that sounds like a lot to me. And you know, internally maybe you could handle that better because you have the experts that are you know, there all the way through development that could, you know, smooth, kind of smooth the way to make get you know, get those done. Yeah, I just don't think that we realize yet how challenging it was uh, to produce these vaccines the way they did. And, you know, it's starting to come out now what these companies went through to accomplish this. And, you know, some succeeded, some had problems. There's a lot of lessons learned, but the whole thing was extraordinary. I was going to say, I remember talking to um, someone who used to lead a lot of manufacturing efforts at Merck related to vaccines very early on in the pandemic. And the person was kind of saying, you know, it might take normally like eight to nine months or something like that just for FDA to kind of inspect a manufacturing facility normally um, for these types of products and approve it. So, I mean, Right, kind of echoing what Bowman is saying, but you have, I mean, obviously more expertise in this. You know, these are these are not things that normally happen at this speed and for a reason, right? <laughs> in terms of how challenging it is and how um, many, you know, places there are where you could go wrong. So, you know, in some ways, I wonder almost if you could think about this in the same way some people were talking about the, you know, the catching, you know, the adverse events with the J&J &J shot, that this is sort of a sign of how careful we've been to make sure people get quality products in some to some extent. Right. But I mean, this was all just... kind of caught and, we, you know, it didn't go out um, that way. Right. I mean, uh, and that's, you know, that's another part of it is not only how, how they were able to ramp up the production, but they were able to do it with all the quality processes in place so that when things went wrong, they caught them. So um, it's pretty amazing. And, and that's what having a good quality system is. It's not about not having problems necessarily. It's about being sure that when there are problems, you catch them and you deal with them. And uh, we've seen that throughout this whole process of uh, companies doing that. So um, overall, I think it's been a great effort, uh, but it's good to look back and, and you know, um, getting back to emergent biosolutions, I mean, maybe their idea is that the government should just keep them at this high funding level going forward <laughs> until the next <laughs> pandemic. You know, that's great for them. But the reality is that there has to be some uh, better model. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, despite all of its flaws, the Defense Production Act approach at least gives you a way to sort of like commandeer a facility where they already have teams in place that are used to working together, uh, that have proven that they know how to make product uh, correctly 
and do it all the time and say, look, we need you to stop what you're doing and turn your attention to this vaccine. And, uh, you know, maybe that's a, a better way to do it. Well, certainly industry has not uh, been a big fan of the uh, uh, Defense uh, Production Act. Uh, um, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know if that's sort of a more a philosophical objection to the idea that sort of the government's deciding what uh, what gets made and what doesn't, or if it's sort of a convenient uh, defense for their uh, IP argument, saying that the real problem isn't so much the patents, but that uh, that the uh, um, the U.S. is sort of gobbling up all all the supply uh, um, issues. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, how that plays out. Uh, uh, you know, President Biden just this week. Uh, um, in his speech on uh, donating donating vaccines, said that he was hoping to ramp up domestic production for the next time. But uh, as you're saying, Bowman, it seems like they've got to figure out sort of kind of how best to uh, maintain that excess capacity if uh, um, if they really want to be uh, be faster next time. Right, and I'm sure you know I'm sure they're going to learn the lessons from it. I just hope that the um, public and the Congress in the administration are focused on that at the point in time when they can actually lay out the plan for preparing for the next pandemic. I, I do worry that everyone will move on to other things and then just let it sit there uh, and, um, uh, and, and fester until all of a sudden it's a problem again. Yeah, that's one of the, uh, well, one of the good things about the coming out of the pandemic is we all learned a little more about vaccine and pharmaceutical manufacturing, which is something that I'm sure all of us studied it, you know, in college and in grade school and, you know, um, but, uh, you know, yeah, the, the, the key thing is you need to, we need to remember this past, like, you know, next week, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to just moving on to the next thing, like you said. So, right. I would just mention that, uh, one of the things that really annoyed the pharmaceutical industry last year was, uh, the HHS, uh, uh, initiated an effort to invent uh, the next generation version of the strategic national stockpile, which is where all uh, all of this uh, government production of vaccines and medicines and so forth uh, technically goes to. And they were asking industry to um, to really think through what the next generation should look like at a time when everybody was working 24 seven dealing with this pandemic. But now you can see why, you know, because, uh, you know, that that's when everybody was focused on the question and when you could actually get something done. Um, now, when there's going to be more time to figure out the next generation, uh, I just hope that um, the public is, you know, the country is attentive enough to it to actually uh, put the money into it and think it through and establish that system. Yeah, the FDA is going through uh, some of the, you know, the same uh, kind of after action uh, rep uh, analysis, too. I mean, there was a, a former commissioner this week called for uh, an independent commission to look into that in addition to the internal one. So, yeah, it's a, this is one of those things that, you know, uh, you, know you, you want the focus to remain on it, but then you also want you know, you want to have like five minutes to kind of take a breath, you know, to, before we start thinking about it again. Exactly. <laughs> well, next up is a is a rather unique move by the FDA to publicly rebuke a sponsor of an investigational COVID-19 treatment. 
Cytodyne has conducted two clinical trials for its monoclonal antibody Leronlimab in COVID-19 and has requested an emergency use authorization. Its public statements have highlighted favorable subgroup analyses, sometimes at time points that were different from those that were pre-specified in the analysis plan. And on May 17th, the FDA took the extraordinary step of issuing a public statement saying that the trials of Leronlimab did not support clinical benefit as a COVID-19 treatment. The FDA also noted that there was no clinically meaningful difference between study drug and placebo on the primary endpoint, which was total clinical symptom score, and none of the secondary endpoints were met. This is the second time in the last few months that the agency has done this. On March 2nd, CBER issued a statement on the Brainstorm Cell Therapeutics proposed ALS treatment, saying the trial failed to meet primary and secondary endpoints. So I'll open it up to the panel here. Do these two rebukes suggest the agency is taking a more proactive role in dealing with misleading corporate communications? Or maybe more importantly, do you think this will scare industry into ensuring their statements are completely accurate before they put them out? My big question here, right, is sort of, is this kind of a slippery slope? And like, (laughs) how does FDA sort of, I mean, there are a lot of people outside of industry, right, who have put pressure on FDA to be more transparent about what is happening with certain products pre-approval or, you know, when CRLs are issued, um, you you know, for more transparency, particularly because, you know, there, I think there've been a lot of cases where, you know, investors and people felt very misled um, as to the progress of products. um, And then, once FDA is able to weigh in, you get a very different take. So I guess my question is, right, like how does FDA kind of justify the rules of the road here in terms of when they will weigh in or when they won't? And how can they, you know, come back and say, oh, no, we can't talk about this, when in some cases they are concluding they can. I mean, I know they sort of said there's like significant public interest here and, uh, you know, obviously a pandemic perhaps make adds to it, though, in Brainstorm's case, you know, they certainly don't have that to fall back on. Um, And, you know, again, I think there are groups of people who would argue, you know, does it matter whether, you know, there's significant public, right? If you're the investor who's, you know, been put in a really horrible, you know, financial position because a company was not really being as truthful as they should be about, you know, accuracy, what, you know, they might make an argument that, you know, FDA should, be more helpful there. So I guess I just kind of wonder, you know, how FDA sort of defends when they will or won't weigh in on these situations. It's kind of easier when they they have this like very, you know, firm red line. Yeah, they've uh, uh, usually said, uh, you know, our hands are tied, uh, you know, regulations prohibit us from uh, discussing proprietary information, uh, um, you know, until a certain point in the review, if it's the advisor committee or uh, or what have you. Um, and they have said, oh, well, you know, we might DM the SEC if we really see something that's, uh, you know, bad and uh, um, that kind of thing. But now that they have, uh, you know, uh, uh, twice in recent months done this, the question is for kind of, uh, you know, if they haven't said something about a uh, provocative press release, does that mean it's okay? And for kind of what does that uh, uh, signal to investors? And, uh, um, you know, it does for kind of uh, create this risk of, uh, um, you know, this sort of kind of this uh, um, new standard of sort of kind of, uh, um, 
you know, uh, um, this is imprint of FDA approval if they don't say something, given that they are starting to say things. And I think it's a, probably a big resource challenge for the agency to sort of be looking at all this stuff and uh, deciding whether to weigh in. And uh, it's probably not the kind of thing that they would get user fee funding for, for to, uh, to to have some sort of kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, press release police uh, going out there and uh, thinking about, uh, you know, did you, uh, um, you know, characterize your subgroups uh, appropriately? Um, and, uh, um, you know, I think I think the phrase you used, uh, Sarah, slippery slope is probably the right one that, uh, you know, we'd all like to see bad actors called out. But uh, once you get into that business or kind of what, uh, um, you know, what sort of what are the uh, the uh, the implications of it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, we've seen this playbook kind of employed here more. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's more I'm just noticing it more now than I have before, but where, you know, you kind of have some early data and, you know, it looks good and you put out a rosy press release and you say it's really good. And and then, you know, by the time you get to the point, you know, you're trying to kind of seemingly like build kind of public, you know, public support and then public pressure kind of on the regulators to kind of do what you want. And I don't I mean, may, maybe the FDA is kind of, you know, is seeing the same thing and they've they've kind of shown that or, you know, they've kind of figured out a, you know, a legally defensible way of, of dealing with that. Maybe, you know, whether it's commenting on the the statements that have already been made public or, you know, the data that's already been made public or or whatever. Bowman, one of the things that uh, um, struck me as uh, related was the story you did uh, this week on the new guidance looking at uh, um, complete response letters and, uh, you know, pandemic delayed, uh, inspections and FDA sort of made a point of saying that, uh, you know, we, we will, we will not issue a, uh, a CRL, uh, simply because of, uh, delays. And, you know, that's what they've been saying for a while, but, uh, I'm curious if, uh, folks thought that maybe they were doing that because, um, they were concerned that some companies may be sort of kind of implying that, uh, um, uh, you know, or trying to sort of cover up a problem by saying, oh, it's just pandemic-related delays. That may be sort of why we're getting that uh, that CRL and sort of FDA was saying, uh, no, we don't do uh, uh, complete response letters just because of uh, um, pandemic-related uh, inspection delays. Uh, um, I was just sort of, kind of, it struck me as sort of kind of a, uh, um, an in- interesting thing to emphasize at this, uh, at this juncture. Right, right. I mean, we know that... Um... Uh, it's completely within a company's discretion to to disclose what's in a complete response letter, and uh, often there are multiple uh, issues cited. Um, and in this case, uh, you know the inspection delay is mentioned in there, but uh, as the FDA explained in in the recent uh, Q and A guidance document, the um, mention of it doesn't mean that it's actually one of the uh, uh, deficiencies that the complete response is about. Now, um, uh, you do get the sense that maybe some companies have mischaracterized that. Um, uh, certainly, uh, it's preferable to focus on inspection issues rather than issues with the uh, uh, with uh, with clinical trials or you know the product itself. So, uh, I think your question is a good one, Matt. That was my assumption reading the story. <laughs> I, right. I I just sort of thought that that's why FDA was sort of issuing the warning. <laughs> but maybe I guess maybe I've become too cynical. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, uh, that's the feeling I had too. So, um, uh, you know, and maybe it's just uh, 
you know, in, industry will be uh, if they've been if companies have have been a little fast and loose with that. Hopefully, um, they'll get the message and be more careful on it. Or you know, maybe maybe they just didn't uh, recognize the distinction there. Um, it's perhaps a subtle distinction, and maybe they just didn't uh, quite get it. But now the guidance is out. Uh, everyone should understand it now. Well, there's certainly been a lot of complaining about the you know, inspections holding, you know, they let the inability to do an inspection or, you know, whatever you want to call it, holding up approvals. And maybe, you know, the FDA was just tired of hearing that, you know, the people complain about, you know, why can't you come at your, why are you holding up my approval there when there's no problem with the facility? And, you know, they finally had to come up and say, hey, just because, you know, it's not it's not just the pandemic there's other things going on here right i mean that's a real problem uh with these inspections uh for sure it's another interesting thing to watch there as we as we move forward hopefully the you know the a lot of the backlog and and the pandemic uh, related measures will will uh will lift pretty soon and things can get closer back to normal finally today and is an update on version 2.0 of the 21st Century Cures Act, a bill intended to help new treatments reach patients faster. Sarah, you heard some comments from the bill's two primary sponsors on how they plan to proceed. Right, so um, representatives Diana DeGette and Fred Upton were talking about their legislation this week with the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, and um, they seem very kind of confident and excited that um, President Biden's um, you know, um, our ARPA-H, um, this Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health um, that they want to put, um, they're proposing in their budget to sort of put in NIH and kind of would be a big boost for essentially like translational type research for the U.S. government. Um, and they kind of feel see that as like a good hook to kind of attach cures with that and partner with Biden. They said the White House has kind of already talked with them about this. Um, and for those who don't remember, Really, um, a big reason why at the end 21st Century Cures got across the finish line and got the Democratic support it really needed was because it got paired with Biden's cancer moonshot um, and provided so much new government funding for research and so forth. There was a lot about 21st Century Cures I think um, Democrats were kind of wary of, and that sort of sweetener really pushed it over the edge along with they ended up attaching some opium money to it too. So I think they really see like history kind of repeating itself and this unique moment. And I think, I mean, thinking back to when the initial 21st century cures effort first started, I think um, nobody really necessarily thought like, oh, there was going to be this big FDA bill done outside of a user fee year. And I think, of course, they sort of defied the odds and got this done. But I think still now people are like, okay, are they really going to be able to do it again? I mean, Upton doesn't have the same position on the Energy and Commerce Committee. He has to, you know, have that extra leverage. Um, you know, he's no longer the the chair of the committee. Um, obviously, COVID and, you know, the, the, the general the kind of world dynamics, I think, have changed as well. And again, we're starting to get closer to a user fee another user fee package. So it, it 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 does seem like it would be hard for them to kind of get this kind of magic together again. Um, so, you know, I think if they can make this work, 
I mean, that that could really help ensure they get what they want done. I mean, they still also aren't like, you know, ruling anything out. They said, you know, that they're they'd be happy if if they can't get it done that way to get it attached to user fees. You know, they're very kind of pragmatic, I think, um, in a lot of ways. The the other sort of interesting stumbling block I could kind of see happen here for them is that they're making this bill a bit more about access to medicines as opposed to like speeding up R&D and regulatory clearance. You know, there's a little more thought focus on the payment side, but at the same time, they, the two of them clearly don't see eye to eye on drug pricing. So I guess like I could see them running into more political stumbles as this gets further along of like, you know, creating complicated political issues if they get anywhere too close to the drug pricing debate. But at the other side of this, you know, it can be kind of hard to improve access without going to that part of the conversation. Well, I know they were mum on specifics, but other than the um, A A R or A H R P A H or ARPA H, ARPA H. I mean, is there any guess in kind of what what sorts of things they could you know put in the bill, or has there been any kind of like a laundry list of ideas that have come out for it yet? You know, Degad has talked about a bit, you know, again about kind of somehow speeding up decisions from Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services on coverage once FDA grants access. So I think that's one way, one thing they're looking at. Um, You know, obviously they were talking at an, you know, regenerative medicine event and those folks are kind of really pushing to get dedicated funding and assistance for CBER, but particularly for the cell and gene therapy um, sections there and that you know seems like a reasonable possibility um they said they at least like want a plan to do some sort of try and get like a report from the government on kind of the current state of regulations and challenges and so forth um so i think there's some hints of where they're going they also like i don't if again thinking back to the first 21st century cures you know they did a very um they got a lot of buy-in, I guess, from outside groups, and they did a lot of sort of listening sessions and solicit formal processes where they solicited ideas. And they seem to really be kind of pushing for people to, like, come to them and say, like, you know, to, to do some lobbying and say, look, like, we really understand this area better than, you know, you guys, because this is our work in bread and butter. And this tweak to, you know, this government regulation or law would be really important, or this flexibility would be really important. So they were pretty, you know, explicit, like, is there something in this kind of general space that you want done and need to be done? Like, come find us, work with us. And then on the flip side, I think they were saying, okay, and then once, you know, this all comes together, then we also want you to, you know, put on the, put the pressure on to get it done. So I think, again, they, they plan to kind of utilize like a similar process to the bill, although again, acknowledging that COVID circumstances, I think makes it a little bit different. So we shouldn't expect like the parade of hearings and so forth. And I think it'll be a little bit more of a condensed behind the scenes process. Even Upton was talking about how like he, him and get are at very different le- parts of the alphabet. <laughs> so like right now, um, they 
the way the House is voting because of COVID restrictions, they like never see each other at votes. So, like that impacts <laughs> a little bit of the dynamic of how they, you know, how some of this work is getting done. Um, so I thought that was sort of funny. Um, so, just to so, see. So, so we shouldn't expect any more of those like those like three hour listening sessions that went on for those went on for months, I think, for at the beginning of the right. last. Right. I think they're like thinking, hoping maybe, right, to kind of avoid that, maybe potentially just for speed purposes. But I think some of it maybe is, you know, pandemic purposes and other dynamics of the time. But like I said, at the same time, if you're one of those groups they might have invited to do that, I think they want to hear from you. Um, it's just probably not going to be done in the same kind of public forum. Yeah, I think the uh, the, the shift to uh, secret Congress is uh, usually a, a good <laughs> sign for uh, legislation. Uh, um, you know, if you really want something to move, then uh, uh, making it through kind of uh, um, very prominent uh, makes it partisan, which makes it sort of difficult to move. Uh, um, I think the uh, um, circumstances around the uh, the, the the Cures Act the first time sort of kind of with the you know passed through a lame duck uh, um, Congress with Democrats worried about what would happen uh, with a uh, you know a Trump administration uh, and a Republican Congress sort of doing something sort of beyond sort of kind of even what they were already uncomfortable with with the initial uh, version of the bills were kind of drove that you could see sort of maybe a similar dynamic uh, you know it seems like the uh, um, the House is destined to uh, um, go into Republican hands uh, in the midterms and, uh, you know, perhaps the Senate as well. So, uh, um, you know, uh, I don't know if that's kind of uh, encourage Democrats to kind of get on board with uh, with some stuff that might otherwise uh, be concerned about. But it's uh, um, always a uh, um, uh, uh, an interesting thing to uh, to watch when, uh, um, you know, there are two people across the aisle working so closely uh, on, on something like this. So. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, especially when they're trying to do it for a second time. So <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, if they can get if they can get a package together and, and how it uh, how they plan to move it. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Gingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Bowman Cox, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>